Alrighty, turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, as we just heard, that's our passage for today. Whenever you open your Bibles uh, to read and study, I hope that's a daily thing for you, that you open your Bibles on a daily basis. And uh, there are two really helpful questions I found that you can always ask whenever you open your Bibles, and they have great value. The first is this. What do I see of God? Or if you're in the Gospels, like we are in the Gospel of Mark, what do I see about Jesus? It doesn't have to be anything new. It might be something we're reminded of. What do I see of God? Second question that's valuable, what does it mean for me to follow him? In light of what I've just seen about God, what does it mean for me to follow him? Those two questions will almost always yield profitable Bible reading. Okay? They are also kind of the outline for our passage uh, today um, as Jesus goes and interacts with his disciples in the back end of Mark chapter 8. So again, Mark chapter 8, and we'll take a moment and pray as we get ready. But before we pray, I'd like to underscore the importance of these two questions. These in our passage today are life-altering questions. Um, who is this Jesus? What does it mean for me to follow him? Um, if, I, if I need to change, am I willing to change um, to follow him? These questions are absolutely critical maybe the most important questions you'll ever have to answer. So let's pray about those as we get ready to look at the scriptures together. Father, have mercy upon us by your word and by your spirit and show us Jesus. Show us Jesus so that we might follow him all the more. We pray in his name. Amen. So we'll start with the first of those two questions. What do I see of Jesus? Starting in verse 27, chapter 8. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. So this conversation happens in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And it's about as far north as you can go and still be in Israel. Think Minnesota, right? It's way up there on the northern border. It's about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get, both geographically and spiritually. It was a city renowned for the worship of the Greek god Pan, who was that guy who was half man, half goat. Um, keep that place in mind as this story unfolds. Because it's here that Jesus raises the question of his identity. Who do people say that I am? The answers are John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Um, these, these are the popular answers and they are of top drawer religious folk in the life of Israel. Elijah, the prophets. And of course, you might remember that it was Herod's contention that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. There's a Bible commentator a long time ago named Matthew Henry and he wisely said, it is possible for men to have good thoughts of Christ and yet not right ones. A high opinion of him, and yet not high enough. 
And that's what seems to be going on here. So Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them what may be one of the most important questions ever asked, ever. There was no exam question that your semester grade hinged upon that even, that even compared to this question in terms of importance. And how we answer it this morning. Because Jesus is asking us this question this morning as well. He asked them, who do you say that I am? How would you answer that? Who would you say that Jesus is? But before you answer it, know that this question, this question will change everything for you in how you answer it. From now until all eternity. But ever bold in our story, Peter steps to the front. He's a spokesman for the group and he answers it this way. You are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So Peter nails it, right? You are the Christ. That's the New Testament rendering of the Old Testament title, the Messiah. Um, its significance is huge. But, but simply put, when we think of Christ, we think of king, God's king, the king of all. So let's go back to our geography uh, for a minute. It's here in Caesarea Philippi, in a city far from Jerusalem where pagan gods are worshipped, that Jesus is first confessed by a person as the Christ, as king. And it's a subtle declaration of, of Jesus' exalted place over false gods like Pan. And it's a subtle declaration that Jesus longs to be king for these people in these places too. But what did Peter mean when he said Jesus is the Christ, when he called him that? In the first century, the Messiah had kind of taken on the hope of a military conqueror who would rescue Israel from her Gentile enemies, the Romans, for instance. A kind of a shining knight on a white horse kind of image. A triumphant hero dishing out punishment to Israel's enemies. And if that is what Peter meant, and it's likely that he did, then that helps explain why Peter gives the right answer and Jesus tells him, tell no one that. Um, it seems that Jesus' meaning could be nicely captured by Inigo Montoya's famous line, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, right? When Peter says Christ, he has something totally different in mind. He has the right title and invested it with a terribly flawed meaning. Jesus is not going to be that kind of king, at least not this time around. Now, just a quick aside. Some of you have made this your life verse, right? Tell no one about him. Okay. <laughs> that, uh, that is a horrible abuse of scripture and it makes our evangelists like Rob Craig very sad. By the way, today's Rob Craig's birthday. Um, Rob, uh, Rob's beginning a new decade. And the good news is the 40s are a really good decade. The bad news is that's not the decade Rob's starting. <laughs> Nah, not even close to the 40s anymore. Um, but, uh, but think about this. Jesus is asking the disciples to be silent, to wait 
okay? To wait until they can proclaim him truly. Ultimately, that's after his death and resurrection when they see who he is, when they understand his way. Uh, So this is a temporary restraining order, not a lifelong sentence to silence, okay? And now Jesus begins that process of unpacking the meaning of calling him Christ. He begins to tell them plainly what kind of king he will be. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Okay, no parables involved. So Jesus explains what he must do as the Christ. He must suffer. He must be rejected by Israel's leaders. He must be killed and he must rise again. Clearly, clearly, this is not going to be an accidental death, right? He is choosing it with intent, believing it to be the will of God. It must take place this way, Jesus says. And the idea that the Messiah should suffer and die was a grand non sequitur for people from Israel, right? One writer said that the notion that the Messiah would suffer made no sense at all because the Messiah was supposed to defeat evil and injustice and make everything right in the world. How could he defeat evil by suffering and dying? That seems ridiculous or impossible. Frank Matera simply said, Jesus is the expected Messiah in the most unexpected manner. Clearly, Jesus is shattering the mold of messianic expectation in that day. And as a result, Peter cannot get his mind around what Jesus is saying at all. You know, the Apostle Paul warned that the cross would be foolishness to Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. And Peter here stumbles head over heels because in verse 32, Peter took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke Jesus. Um. The language of rebuke here is language that's commonly used of rebuking demons. Peter thinks Jesus has gone over to the dark side here. This is a really strong rebuke from Peter. But Jesus turns it back on him with the same kind of language. Verse 33, turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And just like that, right, Peter goes from first in his class to failing the class, right? Jesus now uses words that he used to rebuke Satan over in Matthew 4 in the wilderness to rebuke Peter. See, a disciple's place is following Jesus, not redirecting him to what you think he should do. It is obeying, not rebuking. Peter is out of place here. He is in Satan's place here. John Piper's little paraphrase is helpful. He says, Peter, if you resist my plan to die, you resist God. You side with Satan against God. Satan doesn't want me dead because he wants you in hell. Satan wants me to bow down and worship him and jump off temples for fame and turn stones into bread for self-preservation. The last thing he wants is for a ransom to be paid for his captives. But that's what God wants, Peter, Because he loves you. My coming to die as your ransom is the love of God for you. So, what do you see of Christ here? 
What do you see of Jesus here? He is the Christ, the King who came to suffer and be rejected and die and be raised on the third day. Okay. So let's turn to that second question. What does it mean for you to follow Christ? Okay. Jesus answers that directly in the next verses. Look at verse 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So let me go all King James-ish on you and put it this way just for memory's sake, okay? Um, I need to deny me and follow thee even at the greatest cost, right? Deny me, follow thee even at the greatest cost. And Jesus lays out there three really strong conditions for those who would come after him. First, he says, deny yourself. And here's some thoughts that helped me as I was thinking about what that means. Ernest Beth says, it is not the denial of something to the self, but the denial of self itself. Dale Bruner says, self-denial is not so much giving up chocolates at Lent as it is giving up ourselves as Lord. It is the decision to let another Lord rule one's life. Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, to deny oneself is to beware only of Christ and no more to self, to see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is, he leads the way, keep close to him. And so self-denial is a kind of willful self-forgetfulness as we focus on and love Jesus more, even more than I love me. So denying yourself chocolate or TV or social media can be helpful, but that's not the point of self-denial here. The point is denying our voice as supreme. It is yielding lordship to another, to Jesus the Christ, our King, Denying particular pleasures or indulgences can be of help towards that end, but they aren't the end. Denying yourself as Lord is. Okay. Deny yourself, he says, and take up your cross. This is a symbol of great humiliating suffering, unthinkable humiliation and suffering. Cicero called crucifixion a most cruel and disgusting punishment. He went on to say it is a crime to put a Roman citizen in chains. It's an enormity to flog one, sheer murder to slay one. What then shall I say of crucifixion? It is impossible to find the word for such an abomination. Take up your cross. Author Neil Postman penned these challenging words for us. I believe I am not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. Professor David Garland says, one cannot live as a disciple the way many people watch television, sitting in a lounge chair with a remote control in hand, ready to switch channels whenever anything unpleasant, tedious, or demanding appears on the screen. Pastor Lee Eklov says, Christians take communion to remember that the cross is the only way to Christ. And Christians are baptized, thrust into a grave and brought back up alive and clean to remember that dying is the only way to follow Christ. Take up your cross. 
Perhaps you remember this sobering story from Pastor Jim Dennison. When Jim was in college, he served as a summer missionary in East Malaysia. While there, he attended a small church, and at one of the church's worship services, a teenage girl came forward to announce her decision to follow Christ and be baptized. And during the service, Jim noticed some worn-out luggage leaning against the wall of the church building, and he asked the pastor about it. And the pastor pointed to the girl who had just been baptized and told Jim, her father said that if she was baptized as a Christian, she could never go home again. So she brought her luggage. Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Take up your cross. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. See, the shadow of his cross is drawing near now. And Jesus would bear it in part as the great demonstration of the love of God for the likes of us. So the Apostle Paul tells us. And this is what it means to follow the cross-bearing Christ. We will suffer to bear the love of God to another. We will be inconvenienced and interrupted and exhausted if need be. We will be misunderstood and misrepresented and outright lied about if need be. We will be overlooked. We will be demoted. We will be terminated if need be. We will be cheated. We will be deceived. We will be abused if need be so that we can show the world what the love of Jesus looks like in our day. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. This self-denying, cross-bearing, Christ-following litany is not an option that's just for super-Christians, for, for serious Christians for pastor types or doctoral students over at the seminary. This is ground level, what it means to be a Christ follower. That's why Jesus calls the crowds to him when he gives his teaching. This is basic Christianity. It is not optional. It says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, anyone, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then, because it matters so much to Jesus, he essentially says the same thing a different way. Look at verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So he's saying to choose and prioritize and protect your life to try to save it is to choose not to deny yourself. He says, if you do this, you'll lose the life I have for you. Choose to pursue your best life now, and you will lose it. So Jesus says, but he says, if you lose your life, that is, if you deny yourself and take up your cross for Jesus' sake and the good news that he taught, he says, you'll save your life. You'll experience the life I have for you. It's deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me all over again in different language with a promise and a warning mixed into it. Jesus says your life is at stake. You only save it by losing it for Jesus and his gospel. 
So Jesus says the same basic thing here twice, back to back. I think he wants us to make sure we get it. Because next he incentivizes it even more with two sobering realities. Here's the first one, verse 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Here it is, sobering reality number one. You can't self-ransom your soul no matter how rich you are. Psalm 49, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. You could be Donald Trump or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos who's evidently the richest man on earth these days and you still cannot ransom your soul But in verse 15 of that same psalm, we read this. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. God can ransom your soul. Only God can. And he accomplishes this according to just a couple pages over in the Gospel of Mark through the substitutionary death of his son. In Mark 10, Jesus says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus because only he can ransom your soul. And there's a second incentive that Jesus gives at the end of our text in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels when he comes again. So here's sobering reality number two. Judgment is coming at Jesus' own hand. If you're ashamed of him these days, then he will be ashamed of you on that day when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Professor Dale Bruner says each of us has opportunity every day either to deny Jesus or to stand up for him by making moral decisions in accordance with his word. In relation to sex and money, men and women confess Jesus as much by what they do and decide as by what they say. Almost every human encounter gives the opportunity either ethically or evangelistically to stand up for Jesus. Now it should be noticed here that Jesus is not talking about the rare denial, the the occasional denial, the occasional shame. Even Peter denied Jesus in that way. But he is cautioning us about a pattern of denial, about a, about a life that denies Jesus. Are you, would, would you say you're denying yourself or you're more denying Jesus? Are you a secret Christian? That is where you go to school or where you work, nobody knows that you follow Jesus? Could that be because you don't really? These are weighty words. You cannot self-ransom. If you're ashamed of Jesus now, he'll reciprocate and be ashamed of you on that day. So let's go back to our two basic Bible study questions. What do you see here of Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Would you say he's the Christ of God? God's king and yours? Would you say that? And if you do, what does it mean for you to follow him? 
What does it look like for you to deny yourself and take up your cross and truly follow a cross-bearing Christ? You know, I collect written prayers uh, kind of in a haphazard way, uh, especially ones from long, long ago. They, um, I figure they've stuck around for a reason, right? So I, I gather them to help me in my own praying. One that's a favorite of mine is about 250, a little more than 250 years old. Um, and it expresses what Jesus is calling us here today beautifully to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. So if, if you would be willing, why don't you join me, stand together, and we'll recite this prayer, we'll pray this prayer together to close our time in the scriptures. It's called the covenant prayer. Let's pray it together. Lord, I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine. So be it. Amen.